Welcome to the second episode of Anthropological Airwaves. My name is Arjun Shankar, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, and I am incredibly excited to introduce this episode, which is on the one hand about Islamophobia in the post-Trump moment in the United States, but which is at the same time about its historical antecedents in anti-black racism, native genocide, and racializations of various immigrant communities, including Latin American communities, Asian communities, and now culminating in the racialization of Muslim communities in the United States. You're going to hear from two scholars, Nazia Kazi of Stockton University and Mariam Dharani, soon-to-be assistant professor at Hamilton College, both of whom take seriously the relationship between Islamophobia and its historical antecedents in order to engage in really unique public dialogues. And I think for us in this podcast, this last point is really the most important. How do we as anthropologists use our uniquely anthropological tools in order to engage with a broader public? The episode was produced by Nusheen Samimi of the University of Pennsylvania, and I look forward to hearing all of your feedback as we move forward and continue to improve. Oh no, we're in trouble, TSA always wanna burst my bubble, always get a random check when I rock the stubble. Oh sorry I gotta search you bruv, oh you're that brave that film in it. My name is Fatima Tasadduk. I'm a third year anthropology student in, at the University of Pennsylvania. I work on uh, politics of infrastructure in Pakistan and how they inform conceptions of democracy, citizenship, and political subjectivities. We are in conversation with Dr. Nazia Kazi, who's an anthropologist uh, working on issues of race and difference in the United States. Uh, Dr. Kazi has conducted ethnographic research on Muslim-American advocacy groups, and she examines what it means for Muslims to ask for legitimacy or the right to belong in the heart of empire. Thank you so much for coming over. Hi, Fatima. Great to be here. Um, to start off, could you tell us a little bit more about your research and the projects that you have worked on and are currently engaging with? What I'm really focused on is the act of representation itself, and I find in my work that it's somewhat fraught um, for Muslim Americans post 9-11 especially, and it seems increasingly post-Trump, to be attempting to represent themselves as Muslim Americans. And I think, you know, one of the things I really come up against in my work is this category of Muslim American itself and what it signifies and then what it shrouds. And I think when we kind of fall back on this category of Muslim American, we really risk overlooking some of these really critical differences. So can you talk a little bit more about how you see these issues changing? It's both a sense of urgency and also a sense of crisis because I think for many of us who work on race in the US for the longest time we were thinking about critiques of liberal forms of racism, you know, focusing on, you know, colorblindness and post-racialism. Now it's like, well, the Klan is back, you know, and we have a whole other fish to fry, really. And I think that a lot of us are sort of struggling to find our footing in this moment that has really been shocking because of the types of critique uh, and dialogue we've been making around race for, you know, over a decade now. There is a certain kind of immediate play, right? right? The tendency to restrict what is happening and reduce what is happening to the figure of Donald Trump or these recent events. And um, it's, it's dangerous in the sense because it, it erases all these histories of racism and different types of discrimination, which is sort of congealed in 
in this figure, right? Yes. But the conversation keeps going back to the person rather mm-hmm. than looking at these histories. I think that it's re- what you're saying is really critical, is that we need to understand Donald Trump not as a break from some type of racial past in America, but the culmination of it. Exactly. Um, and even the way people are talking about the seven countries in the uh, travel ban as somehow about Donald Trump, somehow about his investment portfolio, when really, you know, these were, this was a list that pre-existed his administration. To go back to what you said a little earlier about how we have been focused so much on neoliberal forms of anti-racism and uh, the issues that that springs up, and but you also see some of that in the advocacy work right now, some of the mainstream rhetoric, uh, which people have talked about how that is very problematic. For instance, I personally, have a lot of problem with the idea that we are a nation of immigrants. It erases the histories of genocide and slavery. So can you talk a little bit more about the problems that you see with this kind of rhetoric now? We've seen this intensified protest culture since um, the inauguration. Mm -hmm. And I actually went to the inauguration. Um, I was part of an anti-war pro-Palestine protest. We called it a disruption that happened during the inauguration. I chose not to go to the Women's March the day after um, for precisely, I think, the reasons that you are suggesting, which is in this moment when we're faced with the figure of Trump, who, as I said, is sort of a culmination of America. You know, if we're going to issue a serious challenge to this, we have to be very clear about what it is we want to see instead. And um, for me, that is not um, anything that's aligned with the Clinton campaign or a type of, you know, imperialist feminism that is all too often ever present at a lot of these protest movements. So on January 29th here in Philly, a lot of us were at the airport um, for the travel ban protest. I mean, there were thousands of, I think it was probably about 5,000 people there. And what a lot of folks don't know is that there were two separate protests that took place. There was the one that happened primarily outside the airport behind the police barricades, Mm -hmm. Um, and it seemed to be very collegial with law enforcement. And then there was a black and brown sit-in that happened inside the terminal, and this was uh, an event where, you know, the microphone was really only given to black and brown people to share their experiences of institutional and systemic racism their own uh, refugee or migration stories, and um, white attendees were invited to sit in in solidarity with us. And this was, this uh, sit-in had just a remarkably different tone than what was happening outside, where people were thanking the police for being there and cooperating with them. And inside, we were very clear about the fact that the Fraternal Order of Police endorsed Donald Trump. I think the Customs and Border Patrol Union was the first union to endorse Donald Trump. So we have to be very clear about how we relate to these authoritative sort of structures in this moment, um, or else we kind of risk falling back on a very liberal type of engagement, which is, I think, what got us into this mess to begin with. Absolutely, right. A hashtag that went viral and is still uh, being pushed around is the no ban, no wall or no wall or no ban. Yeah, I think they're using both. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little confusing in that sense, right? Could you talk a little bit more about how that hashtag brings together different but overlapping histories of racism and bigotry against these two social groups of Mexicans, Muslims, and how that how there's significant continuities in the kind of xenophobia that both of these social groups have to face? Absolutely, and I kind of feel that there's what I call like an economy of scale 
of U.S. racism. And we see this very clearly post 9-11 um, is the sort of convergence of anti-Mexican and anti-Muslim sentiment. The very concept of homeland security is itself anti-Muslim and anti-Mexican. And so, you know, in 2010 in Arizona, we saw one of the most draconian, I mean, up until now, uh, anti-immigrant measures, the SB 1070 law, which basically legalized uh, racial profiling by local law enforcement. I don't know that SB 1070 could have been passed without the presence of Islamophobia, you had to have people on a mass scale sort of invested in the idea of a homeland that needs to be secured to begin with. And I think, of course, the post 9-11 moment allowed for the introduction of that type of thought into the American public consciousness. And that then gave license to so much anti-Mexican, anti-Latino uh, racism in the US. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about uh, your public engagement project in making your work accessible to a broader audience? I think this is what all of us have to be thinking about right now. Um, I once taught an undergrad intro to anthropology class where I was teaching uh, In Search of Respect. One of the chapters in that book is called Violating Apartheid. And I asked my students, why do you think he chose to call this chapter violating apartheid? What's apartheid? And I got blank stares. And I was like, well, do people know who Nelson Mandela is? And a room full of 35, 19, and 20-year-olds, not one of them knew. I mean, I teach in New Jersey at Stockton University, not far at all from Philadelphia here. And none of my students have ever heard of the move bombing. And I think, actually, many Philadelphians have never heard of the move bombing. Now, that historically should have made the history books because think about local law enforcement dropping bombs on a residential neighborhood and the police commissioner saying let it burn and people losing their lives and that to me i mean i, I just the fact that that is omitted from the history books is not just uh telling i think it's actually a teachable moment and i think one of the things we can do as educators is kind of surprise people with these um, you know, blind spots in, our, in their political education and use that as the starting point to sort of start to think about race, about empire, um, about critical multiculturalism. Thank you so much, Nazia. This yeah. has been lovely. Terminal 5, Terminal 1, think with termites. Wanna terminate us? Terminal 5, Terminal 1, think with termites. Wanna terminate us? Terminal 5, Terminal 1, think, think with termites. Wanna terminate us? I'm sorry for the inconvenience, sir. Here's a champagne. Enjoy first class. Uh, my name is Michelle Maniqua, and um, my work is about refugee resettlement and asylum advocacy and the institutions that do it in Philadelphia. And I'm here with Dr. Mariam Durrani, who is an anthropologist, a teacher, a writer, a media maker, and a committed activist for social justice. Her research bridges the anthropology of Muslim youth, feminist approaches to transnationalism and migration studies, studies of gender and critical visuality in classrooms and in the media. So thank you so much for joining me, Mariam. Thanks for having me. Can you just tell me a little bit more about your ethnographic research among Pakistani origin Muslim college students? So I did a transnational ethnography, mm -hmm. both in Lahore and New York City. And I was interested in students who migrated for higher education. So one of the things that's come up a lot is dissecting this category of Muslim, right? Complicating it. Um, mm -hmm. Not to suggest that it's not important, but to make clear that there are a lot of things that go into being, enacting one's Muslim identity, um, practicing Islam, mm -hmm. and of course, given the current political climate, right, there's this idea that like 
being Muslim means something in particular. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about you know what your thoughts are on the way that the category of Muslim has been mobilized in mm-hmm. this political climate. There's a couple of different ways that I think people have talked about it, which I find useful. Anne Norton, who's a political scientist here at Penn, has written a book called On the Muslim Question. And in this book, she basically does this work of thinking about how the Muslim figure is seen as somewhat analogously to the way the Jewish figure was positioned within like Enlightenment discourses. How do we create a more liberal democracy in taking into account this minority population? But the problem with that is that it really doesn't take into account and, and give a full understanding of the Muslim in the U.S., right? Because the first Muslims that came to the U.S. were not immigrants, but actually slaves. Mm-hmm. And so the story of, of the um, African-American Muslim is completely left out when this particular question around like the Muslim immigrant and what do you do with the Muslim immigrant and how are they assimilated into this Western liberal democracy or whatever. So that's another part of it, I think, that people are writing about and talking about, which is what's happening within the Muslim community mm-hmm. with regards to you know, the Arab immigrant, the South Asian immigrant, and then the African-American Muslim. Right. And I think the way that this category is gendered is also a really important component of this, where you know, the Muslim woman, for example, has been presented oftentimes as someone who needs to be saved and needs to be rescued. And Abu Lagad's like awesome essay about do Muslim women really need saving, you know, does a lot of the work on, I think, unpacking that gendered aspect to the category. But there's a lot of people who are also writing about masculinity, like Muslim masculinities and how the masculinized Muslim subject is seen as the terrorist and and as dangerous and threatening. And so there's a lot of really important overlaps with how that gendered figure is actually drawing from a much, and, and the racism around that mm-hmm. is drawing from a much longer history of like anti-black racism in the United States, right? And seeing like the um, racialized figure of black men and black women in relationship to like this Muslim man who is threatening, scary, wants to, you know, end all of us or what have you type of thing. So I think it's really important to think about all these different ways that even the critique of the category are emerging in relationship to each other, because that allows us to see just what kind of damage, first of all, this language has done already. Mm -hmm. And then we can go about you know, critiquing that and kind of offering up other ways of producing that that discourse and, and what have you. And so the last thing I'll say is that most recently there's been a little bit of, um, there's been a little bit of language around the idea of Muslims as like the new model American citizen. Mm. You know, um, Van Jones went on CNN, mm-hmm. I think. Honestly, if a Muslim family moved next door to you, you would be the happiest person in the world. First of all, the chances of your kids getting in trouble just went way down, okay, went way down. Because the Muslim community has the lowest crime rate, the highest entrepreneurship, the highest educational attainment for women in the country. They are the model American community. The way that that, now the the Muslim as like the model American or model minority or whatever is being taken up is doing a similar kind of violence against other you know, racial minorities and 
is reproducing that, even if it's in some sense, I think, trying to reduce the kind of violence and hatred that's directed right now towards Muslims, it's, it might deflect that, but kind of it, it's, you know, obviously focusing on another group of people. Can you speak to me a little bit more about sort of public outreach, sort mm -hmm. of the role mm -hmm. that various forms of media and multimodality play and sort of how you conceptualize your right. role as a public scholar? Absolutely. I think when you're working with populations that are experiencing marginalization, discrimination, and have such real consequences in people's lives, in, in the lives of participants, but also more generally in, in the lives of people that you know, it's really important to figure out how to do that and how to do that well. But I think that's the challenge, is like how to actually engage in public scholarship such that you feel that the time that you spend on it is meaningful and, and has some kind of value. Mm. Um, one of the things that I first started to do about two years ago is writing for this news web magazine called Religion Dispatches and writing short editorial pieces for them in response to particular news that was going on at that time, news events of, of that in that moment. And so I think that's an interesting that's an interesting place to engage in public scholarship because it has to be, it's very timely, it's very time sensitive. So if you are you know, if, if something happens and you don't write about it within a week, it's basically over, which is like the total opposite of how we as anthropologists go about speaking on an issue mm. um, and having thought about it for months, years, before you actually feel like you can really, you know, definitively say something about it. However, like, I think there's ways of using our anthropological um, analytics that are still useful in the moment when even it is a time-sensitive piece. Mm. So, for example, I wrote something around um, the new, there was a, when the San Bernardino um, shootings happened, the New York Times had a front page that had an image of the home of the shooters. And it was a really nondescript image because there was, I think, there was a table with, you know, a tablecloth and some things on the table, and there was like, um, a hanging that had the 99 names of Allah, which is something you'll find in a lot of Muslim homes, and that this is kind of all colluding together to give an image of violence and association with Islam, and that there's something clearly problematic about that, because that living room, I've been in rooms that look exactly like that my entire life, and I don't know anybody who's a shooter, or, you know, so, what is this doing? What is this doing for, for people who, first of all, for young people who see this and see that their homes are being presented in some way of like, you know, the, um, you know, um, home base for like some kind of criminal. And also for people who, necess who, who don't have any familiarity with this and yet now associate, you know, every time they see Arabic script, they immediately think that it has something to do with terrorism mm -hmm. and this kind of one-to-one -one understanding is perpetuated through this kind of discourse, through this kind of visual discourse. But it's, it's not that easy to spend that much time writing, you know, 800 or 1200 word op-eds when you have to teach and you have to write your own articles and you have a life, obviously. So, right. but it's really important, I think, because there's certainly a, um, there's just a dearth in terms of, I think, people having <clears throat> sensitivity around some of these issues and and for those of us who specifically work on race or gender or other ways that populations are organized and thus 
marginalized and oppressed. It's it's incumbent upon us to say more. Cool. Is that it? Sounds like it. Okay, <laughs> great. In news from the campaign trail, Donald Trump is calling for all Muslims to undergo a loyalty test. Thank you again for listening to the second episode of Anthropologic Airwaves, and I really hope you join us for the third episode, which is ostensibly about social imaginaries, but really so much more. Our producer of that episode, Diego Arispe Bazan, will be interviewing Damien Stankiewicz of Temple University to think through how a critique of the social imaginary might open up space for a different kind of public engagement. Should be a really interesting discussion, and I hope you join us. The music you heard in this episode is from the Sweatshop Boys track T5. What if you drowned in a boat, Yanks eat turkey, cause your peeps have found a home. Will you think all the sounds on your phone from? Will you mean the Majesty's London? Will you think all the Majesty come from? Trump won't my exit, but if you press the red button to watch Netflix, bruv, I'm on. I run the city like my name's Sadiq, not the Syrian city of the beat. Some all I wanna preach, but, but that's beat. I shut them up like sheep on buckwheat. Oh no, we're in trouble. TSA always wanna burst my bubble. Always get a random check when I rock the stubble.